you do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. Grassy Knoll's got a gun. He's gonna shoot the president. Holy smokes, I've gotta do something. All right, Lee, time to become an American hero. picture this and keep in mind this is hypothetical my name is Orenthal James Simpson OJ to most people I looked down and saw her on the ground in front of me Goldman was only a few feet away slumped against the bars of the fence both he and Nicole were lying in giant pools of blood notice the knife in my hand the knife was covered in blood as were my hand and wrist and half of my right forearm Jesus Christ OJ what have you done? This was about me. I was depressed. Then I was angry. Then I was depressed again. For the first time in my life, I thought about killing myself. I unzipped it and pulled out the magnum. I was in tremendous pain, and I saw nothing but more pain ahead of me, and I decided to end it. One shot to the fucking head, and it's over. And just then, I heard Dan Rather's voice on the radio. And I just goddamn snapped. What the fuck, motherfucker? I almost put a bullet through the radio. I wasn't thinking of killing myself anymore. We should have tried harder. I should have tried harder. The lesson here was simple. It doesn't always pay to do the right thing. Especially if you're doing it for people who don't give a fuck about you. I thought about that as I stripped and got into bed. Don't feel sorry for me. Please think of the real OJ and not this lost person. Keith Lumsowich. Peace and love. OJ. Is that twisted or what? Damn you, Dan Rather, pissing off O.J. Simpson and all. After what you did with the Kennedy assassination. My goodness, man. <laughs> anyway, what's up, everybody? And welcome to episode number 97 of the Lone Gummin Podcast. This is your boy Rob Clark with you for the season year-ending extravaganza. That's right. Today, I've got a hell of a show that I've been working on for months, 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 months. But before we get into the show, this being, you know, the last show of the year and all, I would like to take this time to thank 
all of my previous guests that I've had on the past year um, for taking time out of their busy schedules to come and spend some time with the podcast and me and you and also you, the listeners, uh, for supporting this show, for sharing this show, for liking this show, for donating to the show. It's unbelievable how much that this show has grown in, in just one year's time. It's, it's, it's just amazing. I mean, as we're cracking on uh, the new year, we're approaching 36,000 listens and downloads, um, over 1,130-some followers on Spreaker. It's just amazing. It's mind-blowing. I feel the love, and I hope you know that I try to give it back to you every week. Um, and real quick, let me send, send some special uh, shout-outs to some certain people that without them, there would be no Lone Gummin podcast. You know, while this is very much a one-man show, um, I couldn't do it without the support of my friends and and colleagues. So my brother from another mother, Mr. Doug Campbell, thank you, brother, for everything you've done for me over the years. And everybody, if you haven't yet, if, you, if you're not checking out the Dallas action, I don't know what the hell is wrong with you. I try to make it easy for you to listen. If you go to tlgpodcast.com, there's a dedicated page on there just for the Dallas action where you can always listen to the newest episode right there on the embedded player on the Dallas action tab on my website. Also, my fellow brethren in the Neapolis media group, Carmine Savastano from tpac.com, that's T-P-A-A-K.com, and Chuck Ocelli from Ocelli.com and American Freedom Radio. Uh, for always being there, for always having my back, for for coming on the show when I need a guest, Carmine, uh, which is frequently. He is my definitely my most featured guest, um, and Chuck for helping me out with the uh, with the audio stuff. And uh, you know he's a very smart guy, very smart researcher, and and also I thank him for having me on his show a couple times this past year. Uh, it's been a pleasure, and many more to come. Believe it. Also. My main man, Will Hart, over at JFK Primary Sources, for always being there when I need uh, when I need a buddy, a pal, and somebody to bounce ideas off of, somebody to throw stuff against the wall, uh, somebody to dig up documents for me. You know, I can I can always call Will and be like, "Hey, man, I need this, this, that, and this, and that on this person." You know, what do you got? And he's always there for me. So please support all my friends. And uh, you can go to my website, tlgpodcast.com, and there's a list of buttons on the right-hand side that will take you directly to their web pages and their work. So please support them. And also, a new name, a new member to the Lone Gummin family that I want to introduce everybody to is Sebastian Tipley. You know, I've always said on here, look, I need a tech guy. I need a tech guy. Uh, well, I finally got one, and uh, he's great. He owns a company called Video Production One over in England, Taunton, Somerset to be exact. Um, his website is videoproductionone.co.uk. And the one in Video Production One is spelled out. It's not just the, it's not just the number. So it's videoproductionone.co.uk. And what, uh, what Sebastian can do is if you have a website or a company and you would like to increase 
the uh, the SEO and the search results for your website, or he can also help you produce uh, video marketing videos, you know, to pr- to promote your company or your business or your website, and he can get you the t- to the top of the of of the Google results uh, and, and and things of this nature. So please support Sebastian. He's been working with me behind the scenes. We're creating a new Lone Gummin podcast uh, YouTube page. We're going to try to get up all the episodes on the YouTube, you know, which is, believe me, a Herculean task unto itself. But we will get there eventually. And thank you so much to Sebastian for helping me out and reaching out to me and uh, and being a good friend. So please, if you need any video production work or web promotion, check Sebastian out at videoproduction1.co.uk. If you're in England, and I do know people in England listen to this show, uh, you can call him at 01823-617-108 and tell him your boy sent you. Okay, people, you heard O.J. Simpson at the beginning of the show, and you're probably thinking to yourself, what in the Sam hell is going on here? Well, a couple years ago, before he got into uh, more trouble, <laughs> uh, O.J. Simpson decided to write a book, and it was called If I Did It. Uh, unfortunately, it did not get published widely, uh, but if you look for it hard enough on the internet, you can find downloadable PDF files of it. And I thought it'd be interesting to apply this, you know, to Lee Harvey Oswald. You know, what What if he wrote something about, you know, if he did it, here's how I did it. And I thought it'd be interesting to uh, to explore that path. Because I know a lot of people think... You know, that Lee, that Lee Harvey Oswald was innocent. Some say that he was not guilty. Some say he was guilty. Totally guilty. Now, there's a big difference between all three of those classifications. You know, totally innocent means that he was, you know, had no knowledge whatsoever of the assassination, and he, and he took no part in it whatsoever, and he was totally framed. Um, not guilty means that maybe he knew something was going to happen. Maybe he did something, some part of it, um, but there's just not enough evidence to put him up in the sixth floor window shooting that gun. And guilty, you know, of course, implies that he was up there with the gun uh, shooting at the president. So we're going to be exploring this little pathway uh, here today and it's something I've been working on for a little while and I hope you dig it because it's definitely different and <coughs> forgive me if I bumble some words I am not a very good public speaker um, this will let you know that my show is not scripted whatsoever um, because when I have to read stuff I sound pretty bad but bear with me, and I hope you enjoy the show. It's been a great year. Mazel tov.
I was recently contacted by a relative of former da Dallas Postal Inspector Harry Holmes. They recently came across an envelope taped under a drawer in a desk that has been handed down in the family. Scared to contact law enforcement and fearful their discovery would be accidentally lost to history, they reached out to me. They asked that I disseminate the contents of this envelope unfiltered so the world could finally know the truth. This is the smoking gun the research community has been waiting for. That envelope addressed to Lee Harvey Oswald found a couple weeks after the assassination and turned over to the FBI by Harry Holmes was always peculiar to say the least. They alleged that it was open when they found it and that all it contained was some cardboard paper of the same ilk as the alleged gun bag. Well, as it turns out, it wasn't empty at all. It contained the single most explosive document ever to surface, solving the mystery once and for all. I had always thought that if he did it, it wasn't the desperate act of a malcontent with no motive, and that if he did it, well, let me just let him tell you in his own words. Here is Lee Harvey Oswald's manifesto. My name is Lee Harvey Oswald, and I'm one of the best intelligence agents ever to grace this planet. Everyone that will ever examine me in the future will believe I was a hopeless loser, a Castro supporter, and a communist sympathizer. The truth, however, is stranger than fiction. Not in my wildest dreams did I ever think things would turn out like this. I wanted to get my version of the events leading up to uh, what happened to the president out there. In the event something horrible happens to me. I'm using an old trick they taught me to use when spies wanted a safe way to exchange information. I intentionally addressed this package to a non-existent address in my real name. So when the package was deemed undeliverable, it would end up in the dead letter bin where it would sit for weeks until I got it. Otherwise, in Spycraft, I would have been given a name and that someone with the correct identification could pick up the package or letter. So if you're reading this, then something very bad has happened to me. My story is a long one, a complicated one, but one that needs to be told. So, I guess I'll start at the beginning so everything hopefully makes sense. I had a rough childhood. My mother tried her best. But a woman with three kids isn't exactly a man's dream relationship. And with mother working to support us, I got passed around between family and friends often. But that upbringing forged my abilities, as I often had to amuse and keep myself occupied as a child. I was a quiet kid and absorbed everything I came across. I learned quickly it was best not to make too many friends, because I always had to leave them behind when we moved. A new neighborhood, a new street, a new state, a new school, new people. Best just to do my own thing, so it wouldn't hurt too bad when we had to move again. I loved television when I could watch it, but often lost myself in books. From the classics to modern-day spy thrillers, anything I could get my hands on. I was extremely intelligent, and still am. School didn't really interest me, and neither did the fake people. I always felt I was on a higher level than everyone else, and destined for greatness. My brothers before me had entered the military as soon as they were old enough, and I can't say I blame them. Life with mother was no picnic. She would rather me make money to bring home than go to school. And speaking of school, I must have been in 20 different schools by the time I was 16. 
I know, I know. Poor me. And get to the good stuff. I did meet some interesting people growing up in New Orleans who would come back in my life later. One important relationship I forged was with David Ferry, a fascinating CIA asset, pilot, and freedom fighter. I met Dave when I was in the Civil Air Patrol. He saw the potential in me and encouraged me to enter the military as soon as possible. He even talked to my mother for me, as she was quite content having me work and bring home money for her. I tried entering the Corps when I turned 16, but was denied. And one long year later, the minute I turned 17, I immediately entered the Marine Corps. They trained us hard, physically. I had never been in better shape, and they were evaluating our skills constantly to find the appropriate place for everyone to best serve. Turns out I was pretty proficient at radar. The technology fascinated me, and soon we would be shipping for Japan via California. Upon arriving in California, one day I was approached by a man from ONI who wanted to talk to me. He said my test scores were through the roof and that they were looking for someone like me to participate in some highly secret projects and would I be interested. I said sure, and he told me that it wouldn't be easy and I had some very tough time-consuming work ahead of me. He said I had a year to learn Russian. Russian, I said. Yes, son, we've noticed your interest in socioeconomics, and that I would be traveling to Russia as a defector to gain intel, see how long they would let me stay, and what they, w- what they would do to me, how they would treat me, and to come back when I had learned all I could. He told me who to contact, and said he would find me when I returned. He said someone else would let me know when it was time to go. This mission was so secretive, I was sworn to secrecy under the penalty of court-martial should I breathe a word to anyone. Not friends, not family, no one. I was to be one of many who tried this, all of different backgrounds and skill levels. I was to become immersed in Russian culture and become fluent in the language and that he was counting on me. All my spare time was spent reading and listening to records. I kept to myself as much as possible. And during endured the razzing of the guys calling me Osvodkovich and Comrade, knowing I had a secret purpose. But I did it. In less than a year, I became passably fluent in spoken Russian and Cyrillic. It was the hardest thing I'd ever done in my life up to this point. After returning from overseas, finally, one day, I was approached by a man who told me it was time to get ready to go. I was taught interrogation techniques and advised on what the Russians could possibly do to me if they discovered I was a secret agent. We had laid the groundwork so it would appear that I was headed to some obscure college in Switzerland. We then concocted a story about my mother getting hit on the head by a jar of candy, my idea, put in for early dismissal, and waited for the approval, which came astonishingly quickly. After being put through the proverbial ringer for a couple weeks, I was given a couple thousand dollars and instructions on the easiest way to make it into Russia via freighter to England, then by train to Finland to cross into Russia there as a tourist. They had told me the American embassy was probably bugged and to make a big show of wanting to defect and to seem very sincere. They also told me to do it on a Saturday, so it really wouldn't count and I wouldn't have a big problem getting my passport back when I was ready to return. I played the Russians like a fiddle. I knew when my interest escort would show up, and I timed the suicide attempt perfectly. The plan went off without a hitch, and they let me stay as long as I wanted. 
I fell quickly for a beautiful girl, but she thought I would be more trouble than I was worth. <laughs> Smart girl. They had told me a Russian girl would probably be assigned to get close to me, and they were right. I tested the next one by proposing marriage a week after I met her, and to my surprise, she said yes. <laughs> they gave us an apartment in Minsk. It took me a week, but I found all their listening devices and cameras, and I'm sure the phone was tapped as well. You could hear the clicking when you picked up the receiver. Despite the bland economy and living conditions for most, <clears throat> I managed to befriend several people I work with and that lived in the same building. We were very social while there, always finding things to do and amuse ourselves. To most Russians, I was an enigma, an oddity from the West, that were wondering why in the hell I would want to come here from America. It was one of those things where I knew that they knew, and they knew that I knew, and I knew that they knew I knew they knew I knew. <laughs> After two years, I started to think the same thing, that if I stayed any longer, I would have to stay for good and that it was time to go. I thought the return would be more difficult than it was now that I was bringing back a baby and a Russian wife. They even gave us money to come back. We said goodbye to our friends, packed our meager belongings, and started the long journey back home. Upon arrival, we were separated, and Marina and Junie were taken to a nice hotel and given free meals. I, however, was debriefed in a cold, heartless room somewhere in New York, they asked a ton of questions, which I answered, and was given mops of Moscow and Minsk, and asked to mark where certain things were. They asked about everything from military installations to where stores and schools were located. They asked about Soviet life and how communism worked there. After a long two days of in interrogation, we were finally allowed to continue our journey back to Texas. Things got a little rough when they tried to determine if I had been turned while in Russia and I had to assure them that they hadn't even tried. I was just constantly monitored and surveilled. Back in Texas, things with my family had started falling apart rather quickly when I started asking to borrow money and questions started being raised about how I would support my wife and family. Thankfully, we were taken in and assisted by the white Russian community of Dallas, and I made a great friend in one George DeMornshield. He was a great businessman who shared my political views and didn't pass judgment on me the way the others had. Things got heated one night at a party as the conversation turned toward the antics of General Edwin Walker, who lived here in Dallas. By the end of the night, I was convinced by Volkmore Schmidt that someone had to do something about him. So, one night I grabbed my rifle and I set off to Turtle Creek Boulevard. I had just got the damn rifle in the mail under the Hydell alias I had been instructed to concoct and hadn't had a chance to have it properly sighted in yet. I was hoping it would be good enough. I lined up my crosshairs between the eyes of this dangerous lunatic and squeezed the trigger and... Nothing. No blood, no sign of a hit. I heard the glass shatter as the bullet careened through it. The bullet must have been deflected. No time for a second shot. Gotta go. And with that, I slipped slowly back into the night. I hid the rifle in some bushes and hustled from the scene. A couple blocks away, I was picked up by the DPD and taken in for questioning. A couple hours later, after telling them nothing, they came and said I was free to go and said something about having friends in high places. I couldn't believe it. I was free. The next day, I waited till nightfall to go back and collect the rifle, whereupon I put it in the hall closet. A little while later... 
George and Jean came over, and they were acting real funny, asking if we had heard about the Walker shooting and awkwardly asking if it was me. Uh, not sure what to say, I played it off jokingly and gave George a photo of me holding my guns and Marina wrote Hunter of Fascists on the back. Later that night, George informed me that he would be leaving the country for a while on business and that I should lay low and get the hell out of Dallas for a while. So, I headed back to the one place I know better than any other. Back to New Orleans. Soon after arriving, I contacted my mentor, David Ferry. I told him I needed to earn some money, and he told me he'd check on some things and come to see and to come to see him in a few days. I'd known Dave ever since I was a teenager in the Civil Air Patrol. He was a fascinating guy, a pilot with mafia ties, a wannabe priest who was very anti-communist, anti-Castro, who had flown clandestine missions into Cuba to help rebels, and a member of several anti-Castro Cuban groups. He steered me to the Marines and knew my ambitions and said he knew people who would take care of me once there, and he wasn't lying. But that was done, and now I was back. When I went and saw Dave, he told me some things were in the works, but I had to be patient. But for now, he told me to go talk to Guy Bannister, that he had procured me an easy job at a coffee factory as a machine oiler, and that I would have a lot of free time. In the meantime, it wasn't long before the FBI called up to me again. This time, though, they came with a proposition. $200 for information about what the anti-Castro groups and the Cuban exiles were doing. No ratting, just information. And that $200 was a godsend. That, and with the new job, things were finally starting to look up for me. There was a garage next door to, to Riley called the Crescent City. It housed the fleets of various federal agencies and public parking. The owner, Adrian, set me up with a little room in there to keep my stuff so I wouldn't have to take it home and also a little spot to get away from that smelly coffee factory. After a month or so, Dave came to me with an offer. He asked if I remembered Guy Bannister. I said, sure. Uh, he was that private dick Ferry did some work for. I had run into another fellow named Jack Martin at various times with Dave. Jack claimed to be CIA. He knew everybody and could get things done. He said Bannister was looking for somebody to pretend to be a commie Castro supporter to draw out the Reds so they could be put on watch lists. I told Dave I wasn't sure about this, that I wasn't sure I could do it. He said to look at it like undercover work, and as a bonus, that I could also take part in training anti-Castro guerrillas over near Lake Pontchartrain, an invasion force, and that Bannister would also pay $100 a month cash for my services. He said I had the perfect background to pull it off, and as it turned out, I wasn't half bad at it. I scoured the local college campuses, stood on street corners. I was even able to pay a couple guys to help me leaflet. I took it upon myself to go a step further, and I associated myself with an organization called Fair Play for Cuba, and promoted my alter self to secretary of the organization. I even tried to get my chapter recognized nationally, but to no avail. Thanks to the efforts of the FBI to infiltrate and spy on these groups, they weren't very trusting of outsiders they didn't know. Eventually, I was arrested because Carlos saw me on the street handing out my Fair Play for Cuba flyers. And I had just been in his shop the week before offering my services to train the rebels. I had even left him my Marine Corps training manual. <laughs> Oops. Needless to say, he was very upset. And upon arriving at the police station, I demanded to speak to the FBI. 
a man calling himself Quigley showed up, not really knowing what to make of me. I told him this was a preemptive strike to save him and his boys some legwork, that somewhere above his pay grade was knowledge that I was actually an FBI informant, and that they needn't concern themselves with me. I told him of my employment with Bannister, <clears throat> and dropped a few more names to ease his concerns. Satisfied, after a couple hours, he thanked me for my time and took his leave. This little scuffle, though, did do wonders for my exposure. They should surely hear of my loyal deeds in Cuba by now. Much to my dismay, Bannister was furious at my arrest and very public presence. Said I was drawing too much damn attention to myself, and when he saw the address I had stamped on some of the flyers, I thought he was going to rocket to the moon on Fury alone. He told me to get the fuck out of his office, burn my flyers, and lay low for a while. He told me he had some big plans on the horizon and I needed to get my shit together and he needed time to think and he'd be in touch. That bitch Ruth had talked Marina into coming to Texas to stay with her. I tried to explain to her that what I was doing was patriotic, that it really meant something. She had been trying to get back to Russia, writing the embassy every couple weeks to no avail. I told her I had a plan. I would go to Mexico to the embassy there and via the Cuban embassy, head there first, then head to Russia from there that we could eventually be back together and happy in Russia. I'd saved plenty of money by this time and was making plans for my journey when Jack Martin showed up one day at my door. He told me Mr. Bannister wanted to see me right away. Me and Jack set off immediately. Delphine, his secretary, told us with a wink to go right in. Dave was sitting on the couch and Bannister behind his big bureaucratic gray metal desk. Behind him, rows and rows of file cabinets stood under lock and key. I had messed up real bad drawing unwanted attention to the office last time I saw a guy. He motioned for us to have a seat. He told me he heard I was leaving town. I told him yes, that was true. I had to patch things up with my wife and get us back to Russia somehow. So you're going through Cuba via Mexico? That's the plan. Hopefully I prove my loyalty to the revolution and will be given safe passage. What the hell do you want to go back for, Bannister roared. My family guy, that's it. I love my wife and my kids, and I can't live a life here with the feds always sniffing around my jobs, my mail, bothering, marina, following us. We can live simply there. No frills, no bothers. Earn an honest living and be happy. That's it. I can see Bannister bristling in his chair. The thought of somebody wanting to live in that godforsaken commie wasteland obviously bothered him to the core. Look, Lee, here's the thing. Certain people know of your plans. And they aren't going to let them happen unless you agree to do something for them, for us, for the world. I asked him what the hell he was talking about. And that's when Dave spoke up. They want you to kill Castro, Lee. I thought about it for a second and concluded relatively quickly that it was a suicide mission. And I told them as much. We have a contact there that will provide with you with an adequate rifle. We know Castro rides in an open jeep, and we know his route. You'll be positioned in a tall building along that route, and it will take them time for them to determine where the shot even came from. By then, you'll be long gone back to your mother, Russia. They'll think it was some disgruntled rebel, and you, the loyal, loyal Castro agent, will be given safe passage to Russia. They said they had tried everything to get to him, but nobody could, or would. It was almost like he had a sixth sense for danger and could skillfully and masterfully avoid it. 
Telling them no would have been a death sentence for me. So I told them that I would. But I had no intention of fulfilling that promise. The plans were made and the plot was set. They even sent a babysitter with me that would make things more difficult for me in Mexico, but not impossible. I was now about to be truly on my own. I couldn't reach out for assistance because I truly had no idea who was working with or for whom. My plan was to bungle things enough in Mexico so as not to be given a visa to Cuba without appearing too much as a crazy person. Just taking it to that imaginary line without crossing it, you know. Then I go back to Dallas and figure things out. One thing was for sure, I was never going to set foot in New Orleans ever again. These people were maniacal in their hate and anti-communist ideals, and little did I know, so was Dallas. Mexico went exactly as planned. My babysitter, Mr. Osborne, had to return to New Orleans and inform Guy that Cuba was a no-go. I needed to get my bearings after the whole Mexico fiasco, and that close call to action that would have effectively ended my life on this earth. I got a room at the YMCA to lay low for a little while and to best decide how to proceed with Marina and the kids. I knew she was KGB the minute she accepted my insane marriage proposal. I somewhat neutralized her by getting her pregnant and having to worry about something else other than me. I think we both knew we were in way over our heads. She wanted desperately to return to Russia, being pregnant again threw another wrench into that plan. Our charade and oft hostility was getting harder and harder to keep behind closed doors. Maybe the pains were a blessing in disguise. In the meantime, Ruth had changed Marina's mind about wanting to go back to Russia. Now I didn't know what the hell we were going to do. Everywhere I went, couldn't get a job. Things would seem just fine, but after following up, I was told no. I even went to an employment agency to the same avail. Ruth told me of a possible job at the same place as one of her neighbors, some book warehouse near downtown. I had always loved this little area of Dallas, and the big brooding brick building looked promising. I was hired on the spot and caught rides with the neighbor boy, Wesley, whenever I could. He seemed a little slow to me, but real nice nonetheless. I even found a room to stay in when I wasn't at the Paines in Irving. I thought about my alias, but the guys in New Orleans knew that one, and my real name was no good either. So I registered under the name O.H. Lee. Pretty ingenious, right? Uh, Marina had our second baby not too long after that, <clears throat> and we were fighting more than ever. She even wanted Ruth at the hospital with her instead of me. A couple days later, I was walking home from work up Houston Street and over the viaduct to Beckley when I became acutely aware of a slow-moving station wagon keeping pace with me. It pulled up to the curb, and a heavy Latino gentleman I had met a couple times in New Orleans told me to get in. <laughs> What's up, Larry? Long time no see. The man was named Lawrence Howard. He was a Cuban freedom fighter. A real nasty piece of work, and the real deal, according to Dave. They know you're here, Lee. They have a proposition for you to redeem yourself from Mexico, man. A pretty sweet windfall, too. Fifty large for doing it. The kind of deal you don't say no to. Remember that guy you shot at last spring? Yeah, General Walker. So what, I said. Well, my friend, he's in charge of our mutual friend's interest here in Dallas. 
Just as powerful as Guy is in New Orleans, this cat is that and more here and within the organization. As reality slowly set in, I leaned my head back and stared at the ceiling of the car. Does Walker know it was me, I said? Yes, his contacts in the DPD told him they picked you up for it. Guy had to schmooze him over real good and explain it had been done to boost his exposure and make him sympathetic to the public as a figure who was so dangerous to the establishment that he should be killed. They told him it was a miss on purpose and hadn't told him ahead of time so he could have plausible deniability. So you see now, you owe Bannister and the boys a favor or they'll deliver you to Walker and trust me, Holmes, you don't want that to happen. So what do they want me to do, I said. Well, unbeknownst to you, you've already been placed in a very strategic position. What the hell do you mean, I asked. Dealey Plaza has been selected as the perfect place to ambush and kill the President of the United States. Holy shit, Larry. And I already work right along the parade route, don't I, I asked. Bingo, he said with a gun-like hand gesture. You still got your rifle? I told him, yeah, I just had to get it. He dropped me off down the street from my rooming house and told me he'd be in touch and just act normal in the meantime. As I lay in this claustrophobic room staring at the ceiling, all I could think about was just how screwed I was and how I could possibly spin this in my favor. 50k is a ton of money. I'd never have to work again. But I would also have to disappear. How the hell did they get me in Dealey Plaza? Wesley's sister supposedly told Ruth, and Ruth told me, I go down there and I'm hired on the spot to start the next day. Hmm. Ruth. It makes sense they would want somebody close to Marina Stateside to keep an eye on her. Damn it, Lee, why hadn't I thought of this before? I cursed myself into slumber, trying to formulate a plan. This past Tuesday, Fat Larry found me walking up Houston Street again. He pulled over and told me to get in. We rode in silence back to the Cabana Motel. Once in his room, he motioned for me to have a seat. He grabbed two beers out of a cooler and handed me one. I told him, no, I didn't drink. He said, trust me, brother. After you hear what we gotta do, you're gonna want one. I acquiesced and took a draw. It actually was quite, quite refreshing. Larry dumped the contents of an envelope on the bed. Tumbling out came pictures, drawings, maps... Tommy just brought all this shit over from the boys in New Orleans. You remember Jack's buddy Tommy, right? Sure, I said. He was there at the trademark when I was leafleting. Okay, here's the deal, Lee. And he smoothed out an aerial view of Dealey Plaza with the streets and buildings all marked. This is your building, the depository. We're going to have you in here. I'm going to be in this building here, the county records building. We're also going to have a guy here, down by the railroad overpass. The idea is to shoot at the same time to disguise the number of shooters and confuse where the sound is coming from. We're going to have two guys down here by this sign giving the signals. From their location, we will all be able to see them clearly. When you see a guy step into the street and raise his fist, that's when we start. Three shots each, that's all we get. There may be other teams, but I have no idea who or where they're going to be. Who's the other shooter down by the tracks, I asked. Just know it's a guy who ain't afraid to pull the trigger on that pinko, commie-loving son of a bitch Kennedy. He fucked us over at the Bay of Pigs. Got all kinds of guys captured or killed because he wanted to make nice with the Soviets. 
We can't get to Castro, but with Kennedy dead and out of the way, maybe the brass will finally have the balls to do what needs to be done, Larry said. How the hell are we supposed to walk away from this, I asked. Simple. I need you up as high as possible. The roof is no good, though. Somebody will see you up there. Gotta be on a high floor where you can use a window as a blind to shoot from. Hide the gun when you're done. Put as much distance between you and the spot you shoot from. You work there, so you won't be suspected right away. Then when the time feels right, you get the hell out of there. You worry about you. That's it. We're all supposed to meet up at the Texas theater afterwards. War is hell, man. That's the movie. And then we got a plane waiting on us. One question I asked. How the hell am I supposed to get a rifle into the building unseen? That, my friend, is your problem, he told me with a grin. We sat for another hour going over trajectories and contingencies. He was going to be doing the same in his building and to give him like 10 minutes and to get it to get out and get to his car. He said he'd pull up past the building and whistle for me. Then we could make our way to the theater. At least that's how it was supposed to go. We parted ways, and in three days, on Friday, my life was going to change one way or the other. Friday was the day. Now, about getting the rifle in the building. <laughs> Thankfully, Old West wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer. The next day at work, I saw Roy truly handling some rifles in the lobby with a fella I'd never seen before. I thought, well, hell, I could just bring it in and say I was going to sell it. But that's no good, because if I wanted to actually get away, people would say I'd brought a rifle to work and everybody in the country would be looking for me. So I got it. I'll just piece together some wrapping paper, put the gun in that, and tell whoever asks what. What is that long that would need to be wrapped up? A baseball bat? No. Billiard cues? Hmm. Light bulbs? Hmm. Right here in front of my face. Curtain rods. That's it. I'll tell Wes I need some curtain rods for my room. Now I just have to get it from Roos, where it lay hidden in a blanket in the garage. Tomorrow I'm going to get a ride with Wes back to Irving. He'll bring me and the rifle to work on Friday, and then whatever happens, happens. Well, that's about it, folks. If you're reading this, something has went terribly wrong. I've been mixed up with the CIA, the FBI, the organization, and the Castro Cubans, the Russians, and I've always come out on top. I was a spy, a would-be assassin, an undercover agent, and now I'm left with no choice in my life thanks to the forces in our government. No choice left except to take out the one not preventing the communist takeover of Cuba. <laughs> Funny how fate works. Will I be remembered as a hero who mercilessly gave his life for the betterment of this country? Or vilified as the killer of the 35th president? Only history will absolve me. Sincerely, Lee Harvey Oswald.
Happy New Year, everybody. Run fast for your mother, run fast for your Some bitches in the can beam up the satellite down directly to your ears, people. This is your boy. Peace. You do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 US only. You do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 US only.